sing it is on the first verse, uh, the women, the chorus, we will all sing in unison. On the second verse, the men will sing only. And then in the chorus, once we go into that, we'll all sing in unison. And then on the third verse, we'll sing it as it's written, all in unison. All right. Ladies first. I am a poor, wayfaring stranger, while traveling through this world of woe. Yet there's no sickness, toil, nor danger in that bright world to which I go. I'm going there to see my father. I'm going there no more to roam.
So I'll start up. I will start over. No, I won't start over, really. We do need help moving Sister Erickson on Thursday. If you didn't get that, get that. Um, I'm excited about Jamaica. I'm excited about our new curriculum. I'm excited about our changes. That's kind of short order. That's the, 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 the quick notes, the cliff notes of, of those things. Seriously, thanks, Brother John, for the prayer tonight. Um, and I was going to say that leading into the lesson for this evening. We're in our last two installments in our quarter-long study of prayer. And I will be honest with you, friends, it has challenged me more than maybe any study that I've ever done in my life to think more deeply and, and spiritually about the use of prayer and the time that we spend in it. I hope that it's been beneficial to those of you that are visiting. What we have done for this quarter is we've introduced some thoughts and a text and a particular prayer on Sunday evening, we've, we've kind of given the outline and framework to that. Then we've come back on Wednesday night in our adult class in the auditorium, and we've had more to say. We've had open discussion about those things, and your comments have challenged me. Your prayers for me have challenged me. Your interest in wanting to be better prayers uh, has, has humbled me, and, and I do believe that the Lord can and will do great things through us if we will stay committed to a fervent prayer life. As a church, and John's prayer tonight, and focusing our minds and our hearts on that worthy walk that we're called, I'm thankful for that, and I'm thankful to be here tonight to be able to preach on, on this matter. I say our last two, because uh, I won't be preaching on the fourth Sunday night, and so I'll preach tonight and next Sunday night, and we're going to spend those, those two sermons and then those two Bible classes looking at the prayer of Luke 11, but particularly in more detail, the prayer of Matthew chapter 6. We're going to call it the prayer of instruction. We've given each, each title. We've looked at prayers dating all the way back to the time of Abraham and looking all the way forward to the end of Revelation last week in the prayer of Lord uh, come quickly. And now we're going to center our thoughts for the next couple of weeks on this, what many consider to be the model prayer, the prayer of instruction. When they asked Jesus, teach us to pray. And so this, this is what he gave them uh, in, in that stead. The fuller version is found in Matthew 6. But I want us to start in, in Luke's account. They are parallel, and so we learn some things from, from each account that are unique and different. And, and Luke's rendering of it and his, and his context overall and book-wise to me is very, very important. It's not the only time in Luke 11 that Jesus is going to be imposed upon in the book. There are a number of things, and unique to Luke, maybe more so than any other gospel, when people would come and make a request of Jesus. For example, in, in, in chapter 7, they're going to tell Jesus, or chapter 17 rather, they're going to ask Jesus in verse 5, Lord, increase our faith. Of all the requests, by the way, that may be the boldest. It's all that asked of him in the, in the book of Luke. Lord, increase our faith. And then a little bit later in Luke 17, in verse 13, they cry, Lord, have mercy on us. In chapter 20, in verse 22, they say, tell us by what authority you do these things. And then in 22 and verse 67, they say, if you are the Christ, tell us. You notice the, the commanding way that those words come across. That they're inquiring and opposing upon the Lord to do something for them. Chapter 24 and verse 29, those that he had walked with for some time and then revealed himself to them, they urged him to stay with us. But in chronological order, our text in Luke 11 and verse 1 is the first time that he is imposed upon in this direct and bold way. And on this occasion it says, And Lord, 
teach us to pray. I think that's important and significant that they would, they would demand that or request that. We're going to get more a little bit later as to why they would ask that and why they would ask it on this occasion. But this is one of the seven times in the book of Luke where Jesus is noted to have been praying. In fact, the text opens in verse 1 by saying, and it happened that while Jesus was praying in a certain place, that after he had finished, they made this request. You go back to chapter 9, you're going to find that that certain place was probably somewhere alone, apart from everyone else. And they gave him his time, they gave him his space, and when he was done with that part of his life, then they imposed upon him to teach them how to pray. What's interesting is that this is the sixth time out of seven in Luke 11 that Jesus is noted as to be, have been actively praying in the book of Luke. The last time, the seventh time, is going to be a prayer we also have already considered, and that's the time he went to the garden and prayed, let this cup pass from me. So it's almost as if in chapter six or chapter 11, this sixth time, that they've said, okay, enough's enough. We've watched you, we've heard you, we've seen the effects of it. Now tell us how to do that. Show us where we can be like you. They had, they had been his disciples, which meant they had learned under him as sort of like an apprentice that they would be like him and do his work. And this one had eluded them. They had watched and they had learned and they had tried to mimic, but something about their prayer life was off. And so by way of instruction, they said, Lord, teach us to pray. And also Luke's context is pretty important because of what flows from it. These, these first few verses in Luke chapter 11 that, that illustrate to us their desire for Jesus teaching to pray is followed up beginning in verse 14 by a context where others would see the power of Jesus and attribute that power to the power of hell itself. That he were doing it by the power of Satan. You see the contrasting ideas, the, the, the complete opposite in, in, in dynamics between what opens this chapter and what fills its middle section. Lord, we've seen you do this and we understand how powerful it is and we realize how important it is. Show us so that we can do it like you're doing it. And on the heels of that came a group of people who said, oh, he's casting out demons. He does that by power of the devil. The nonchalant disrespect and disregard for the authority and power of Christ is contrasted early on by people who said, listen, if you'll just teach, we'll be able to learn. You know how Jesus ends that context all the way down in verse 28? He says, blessed are those who hear the word of God and do it and observe it. There's the, the fullness of that text. I've taught you how to pray. I've showed you the source of my miracles. One accepted and one didn't be like those who were before. Tonight, our challenge is to be like those who would say, Lord, teach us to pray. We've been almost 11 weeks now into this. And I don't know about you, but I still feel like asking that. I still feel like saying that to him. Lord, teach me to pray. Show me where my, my, my inconsistencies are and how incomplete I am and instill how uncertain I am about certain aspects and teach me to pray boldly, daily, and courageously like you do. Now, with those things of Luke 11 in mind, turn over to Matthew's account in Matthew chapter 6. Because Matthew's context is also pretty important as to what's being taught and why it's being taught this way. There are a number of considerations. And by, and by the way, of those of you who are visiting with us, we have, we have sort of treated 
uh, this, this hour together as, as a, a Bible class session, whereas we're just looking at the text, we're looking at the implications, we're trying to draw lessons from it and then fleshing those out on Wednesday. More sermon tonight than Bible class, but still the, the flow of it. So there are some contextual issues in, in Matthew that also make this request and the prayer itself pretty important. You remember that Matthew 6, where this is found, is the heart of the Sermon on the Mount, literally. Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. And so chapter 6 is right in the middle. It's, it's, it's the heart, the, 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 the turning point, uh, the, the, the focus of the sermon that, that's been preached. One writer said that in chapter 5, Jesus had made it very evident that he required more from his followers than the religion of the scribes and Pharisees. Here he insists that a far higher quality is also absolutely necessary. Remember how chapter 5 closes? Really, the second part of chapter 5, you've heard it said, but I say to you, you've heard it said, but I say to you, what, what they had heard it said was what the Pharisees and the scribes had said to them. It's how they had explained the law. It's how they had observed religion under the Old Testament system. Some of it was right, some of it was exaggerated, but here's what you've heard, and I'm telling you, you should do more. Instead of just not killing your brother, don't hate him. Instead of just not committing adultery, don't lust. He was actually asking them and requiring them to do more. In fact, that, that middle section in chapter 5 and verse 20 is the key to it all. Unless your righteousness exceed the righteousness of scribes and Pharisees, you'll by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. You know, the Jews had a, a saying, a, a proverb that said, if two were to enter heaven, one would be a scribe and the other would be a Pharisee. And Jesus said, you've got to be better than both of them. You've got to exceed their righteousness. And in chapter 5 it was, literally, you have to do more. But chapter 6 says you have to do it to a greater quality. Not necessarily more action, but the purpose and intention behind it. He shifts gears at the end of chapter 5, end of chapter 6, and begins to talk about a whole new area wherein their righteousness should exceed that. The scribes and Pharisees. This time he would tell them in verse 2, don't do certain things. In verse 3, don't do certain things. In verse 5, don't be like certain people. In verse 8, he sort of sums it up right before this prayer and says, so don't be like them. Do more. But what you do, do it to a higher quality, for a higher purpose, for a higher motivation. That makes whatever he's going to teach them about prayer pretty significant and pretty important. And it would cause us to stop and take stock of what he's about to say. Not only is it written from, the, from chapter 5 into chapter 6, this prayer and instruction about it is sandwiched in between two great acts of piety expected of the Jewish people. Begins with the giving of alms. And it ends with the subject of fasting. In the middle of it is this idea of prayer. Everyone, by the way, important. In fact, the Jews had three primary cardinal practices that define their faithfulness their love and their devotion and you would guess it they were giving of alms saying prayers and fasting but they weren't the only religion to adopt this the the muslim religion considers prayer fasting and alms giving to be of their chief duties muhammad said on one occasion prayer will carry a man halfway to paradise fasting will bring him into the gates but giving alms will give him entrance that's the way they viewed these Three things. And so Jesus takes these three champions, these, the, the, these three cardinal principles of piety and spirituality and says, do them better. In fact, don't do them like everyone you see around them. 
But I think that continual requirement, don't do it like them, don't do it like them, don't do it, ever, ever get tired of that when you're trying to be taught how to do something or where to go? Can you imagine the directions on your GPS if every road you, turn, you went down it said, now don't turn here and don't turn here. What would you eventually ask? Where am I supposed to turn? It's not that road, it's not that road, it's not that road. Well, where am I supposed to turn? Where am I supposed to go? I believe that's the heart of their question. Friends, Jesus had already been teaching them about prayer, hadn't he? he he's the one that brought the subject up. If you take Luke's account and, and plug it into Matthew's account, Jesus, he brought the question of prayer up himself. Listen, you see them praying in the, in, in the, on the street corners and in the synagogues, by the way. Jesus doesn't give us the content of their prayer, does he? He just says they stand on the street corners of the synagogues. Remember, Luke gives us the content. What was the content of that prayer? Lord, I'm thankful I'm not like these sinners over here. I'm thankful I'm not like these tax collectors. I'm thankful that I'm not like these adulterers. I'm, thank, I'm thankful that I'm righteous and they're not as I pray. He had already been teaching them how to pray, but finally enough was enough again. And they said, okay, if we can't do it like that, how do we do it? Teach us in, in a proactive way how to pray. See, that's why I think that we can still have this request and make this claim even after 12 weeks of study or 11 weeks of study on prayer. They had walked with Jesus and talked with him. They had watched him pray. They had heard him tell them all the ways not to do it. But finally, just tell us how to do it. Just show us the right way. Certainly, what he gave them is the right way. It's the prayer of instruction. It's how you and I ought to pray. It's the things that you and I ought to say. Look at the prayer itself for just a moment. There are six specific requests that are made in it. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. Give us our daily bread, forgive our debts, and deliver us from evil. You might combine the, the, the don't lead us in temptation, but deliver us from evil, but that's the, the nature of it. Six, six expressed requests that are easily divided by category. The first three have to do with God. His name, his character, and his reign. And the last three have to do with me, with where I stand with him, with where I stand in the world, with, with how I act and treat people. And I believe, friends, that our prayers should reflect a balanced view of that. I don't mean every single individual prayer, but our totality of our, the totality of our prayers should reflect praise and worship and honor and deference to who God is and what he claims and what he wants to what I need and what I ask him to grant me. If you were to take a, a scale and place on one side the, the, the words and the, and the time and energy spent in praising and honoring God and deferring to his will and his wants in prayer versus on the other side of the scale asking, almost demanding what God will do, I wonder how out of balance our prayer lives would be. The way he taught us to pray, the way he taught them to pray was right down the middle. Three on one side of the ledger, Three on the other that your prayers might reflect an honest, sincere, devoted, humble heart realizing that we all stand in need of what God has to give us. You know, this natural division occurs the same way in the Decalogue of the Old Testament, doesn't it? First half of those commands in reference to how we view God and how we respect Him and how we honor Him and how we treat Him. 
And then the latter half, the relationships that we have outside of that divine relationship and how we treat those individuals, all based in the first, but, but following through in the latter. Wednesday night, our intention will be to consider the first of those three in our, in our adult Bible class in here, to look at, at what it means to, to, to have the name of God sacred or hallowed, what it means to pray, your kingdom come, and how much faith it takes to pray, your will be done in all things. But tonight, instead of just overviewing those three, what I want to do is I want to talk for just a few minutes, the remainder of our time, about those opening words. The place and the person of God. Our Father in heaven. I know for most of us, those words are trite. They're, they're overused to the degree that we don't think a lot about saying them. They're sort of like the greetings in the letters of Paul, grace and peace. You know, that, that greeting we talked about in, in ladies' class on Tuesday, that, that greeting is profound and divine, and yet sometimes we gloss over it. You're offering grace and peace from God to humanity? That's a powerful offer, and yet we read them as if we expect them to be there and it's no big deal. I think when we open our prayers like this and we say, Our Father in heaven, I'm not sure that we fully embrace and appreciate what we're saying. We're talking about his person and his place, about his position and his power, about where he stands above us and over us. The term used for father here is the idea of a, a child speaking to an earthly father. The, 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 the Greek Abba is the word. And there's some who've come along to suggest that that word was, was sort of a, a, a less than respectful term, a more colloquial term that suggested, and some have actually translated their prayers to say this, daddy, as they pray. It's not at all what the term suggested. What it did was it suggested a, a, a need for and dependency on the one you're talking to. As much as a small child would reach out to his dad for a hand to hold as he crossed the street, for someone to feed him when he was hungry, for someone to give him a roof over his head, without his father, he would be nothing. And friends, that's what we're saying. We call out to our heavenly father. It's a word, an idea, and a concept that's not used a whole lot in the Old Testament. God is not pictured as much in the Old Testament of the father as he is in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, he's pictured more as a husband being married to a bride and his relationship to Israel and, 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 and the various prophecies that are connected to that. But it is believed, and throughout Jewish literature, you can kind of see as they return back from, the promise, or from captivity into the promised land and restoration is made and the second temple is built, you'll find more of that idea and concept coming through in their writings about God being their father. Maybe it's because they had felt so disconnected to him. And they had felt so far apart and so far removed. When you get to the New Testament particularly in, in books like the book of Matthew, it is almost exclusively his, his term of designation as it relates to us, our Father in heaven. What's even more interesting than that is that in the book of Matthew, Jesus in chapter 11, for example, in verse 27, and, and the great scene at, at, at transfiguration and the baptism in, in Matthew 17 and Matthew 3, that there's a personal relationship between Jesus and God the Father. In fact, on those occasions, God would be called my father, and he would say, Jesus, you're my son. If you just read those texts, what you would see was an exclusive, intimate 
special relationship. And then notice how Jesus taught the disciples to pray. Our Father. You see what Jesus is doing there? He's calling them into that relationship. He's calling them into that intimate moment. I know that he's my father, and I know that he's well-pleased in the things that I do, and I know that he wants the world to listen to me, but I'm telling you, you can share in the relationship I have with Jehovah God. He's not just my father. He's our father. When I pray that, there should be something special. It shouldn't just be a way to start or end a prayer. It shouldn't be a filler term to connect the dots when I'm struggling for what else to say in my prayers. When I address him as my father, I'm saying I am I'm in this with you and for you and everything that I need and everything that I want and everything that I desire is hinged upon your answering my prayers. Our father. By the way, when we pray that publicly, you know what it does for the assembly? It draws us into that relationship. You're no longer the person that sits three pews over and five pews back that I talked to on the way out of, the, of service. We're a family together. We, we, we enjoy a relationship, a, a family name, our Father in heaven, the person and character of God. But then also this opening phrase talks about God's place, God's position, where he dwells. We think of heaven, I suppose, as being beyond the clouds, being, being, being away from here. But the idea in, in indicates a place of perfection, a place of, of, of being removed from, from society and from here, being, being a place where his throne is. It's only accessible through Jesus Christ. Our Father who resides there. You know, in Matthew, he uses this term heaven as much as any other book of the New Testament. And a lot of times he refers to it as the kingdom of heaven. He refers to, to the idea of, of going to heaven. In fact, in this very sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, he's going to later talk about heaven being the place where our treasures are laid up. Our Father is where our heart is. And his presence there makes all the difference in the world. When we pray our Father in heaven, we're saying is the one who protects what's been promised to us. The one who offers what's been laid up. I, I'm not working in vain and I'm not laboring for, for just for, for nothing at all. But I'm, I'm working and I'm laboring and I'm, I'm, I'm serving because God is protecting that inheritance for me one day. And he resides where I will receive it. Our Father in heaven. Our close and intimate friend upon whom we depend for everything. The one who sits in protection of all that we've been promised. Now, when I pray that prayer, whatever follows, he's capable of doing. Whatever I need from him, he's capable of giving. If he's the one that sits above the circle of the earth on his throne in heaven, protecting our inheritance, assuring our victory, calling us into a close relationship with him, prayer should be easy beyond that. Sometimes in teaching the girls to pray as they were smaller, and they would begin their prayer in some formal address to God and then stumble with what to say beyond it. They're, they're children. I, I get that's why that happens. Those of us who know him and know heaven, once I've opened my prayer with my Father who dwells in the heaven, who sits on this throne, there is nothing I can't pray to him that he can't handle. 
I believe perhaps that opening line is the most significant thing about the way he taught them to pray. You remember the, the contrast prayer was, God, I'm thankful I'm not like all these other people. Our Father in heaven starts this way, Father, I'm thankful that you have redeemed me and made me whole through Jesus, and without you, I would have nothing. So whatever you grant from this prayer, I'll be satisfied with. And whatever I need from you, I know that you can give. What a game changer that is for the way that we pray. I'm looking forward Wednesday night to our study of those, those three components of the prayer that, 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 that exalts God for who he is and what he's done. But for now, I would just ask you, can you pray those two things? Is God your father? I don't mean as your creator. I mean, have you entered into an intimate relationship with him because you are a part of his family? If not, you can become part of that family tonight through faithful obedience to the gospel of Jesus Christ, by repenting of your past sins, confessing your faith in him, and being immersed in water to have your sins washed away, wherein you will be added to the church, which is his family, with right to call him through prayer, Father. Maybe you have done that, but your treasures are not laid up there. As you address him as your heavenly father tonight, you're not addressing the one who protects your inheritance because all of your trust and all of your stock and all of your stuff is here. How about changing that? How about refocusing and emphasizing things in your life that matter far more than the things that will be burned up one day on this earth? If that's your need, we extend the Lord's invitation to you now to come while we stand. Hear my cry.